All right, everybody, here we go. Um, if you are listening to this and thinking it sounds different than a typical message does uh, streaming online, it's because uh, I'm sitting in my office doing this instead of standing at the, in front of the uh, congregation on a Sunday morning. There was a technical glitch uh, on Sunday, and we weren't able to record it. So I'm doing this kind of like it might be a bit of a radio broadcast or something, but we wanted to add it in to make sure that there wasn't this big gap in the middle of our Job series. So here we go, and you're... I'm glad you're here listening. All right, we're in Job chapter 2, and we are in the middle of our series called Questions Aloud, uh, based on faith and doubt in the book of Job. Uh, we started a couple of weeks ago on the premise for the series with the idea that it's okay to have questions about God, uh, because questions are the only way we get answers, uh, that questions do not equal doubt. It is all right to have questions and to have um, strong questions, uh, and that they are not the equivalent of doubt, uh, you know, being the opposite of faith. We can be very faithful and still have questions about God, and that's a big part of what Job shows us. So we saw that a couple weeks ago. Then last week in chapter 1, we saw with the beginning of the story about this amazing man named Job, uh, the principles that we matter to God. Uh, first of all, we see that in the fact that here's this man, he's wealthy, God has protected him, and then we have that very interesting and strange um, meeting between God and Satan, which we'll get into a little bit more today with the second meeting they have. Uh, but the premise of it that we saw, as opposed to the gods of um, the time, was that God actually cares about and makes reference to the people on earth who are not just uh, secondary to his existence. So we matter to God, but we also saw last week that we live in enemy, enemy territory, much like being um, a freedom fighter in you know, Nazi-occupied France during World War II. Um, so that's why one of the reasons why bad things can happen to good people, because when you become a good person, particularly when you become a Christian, uh, living in enemy territory, Satan being the prince of the power of the air, uh, then we face um, the onslaught of the person who's in charge of the area in which we live, who's then against us as we've given our lives to Christ. So last week we saw that through the princip those principles, through all of the story of, J of Job's extraordinary devastation uh, after this deal goes down with God and Satan. Uh, out of nowhere, it seems to Job, with four messengers, one right after the other, he finds out that he's lost everything he has, all of his possessions and all of his children. And we saw this incredible response to this total devastation when Job, in chapter 1, verse 20, says, uh, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship and utters those famous lines, I came naked into the world and I will leave naked. I have nothing with me when I came in. I'll have nothing with me when I leave. God gave it to me, and he can take it if he wants to. So the question from last week that we looked at was really this question. If God showed up and brought nothing with him, would that be okay? Uh, or is God enough? And we asked ourselves that question and took a serious look at that for our own lives. Today we're going to look into chapter 2, and the question gets harder. It's not just if God showed up and brought nothing with him, would that be okay? Today it's if God showed up and brought trouble with him, would that be okay? So keep that in mind. That's what we'll be looking at as we go through chapter 2 today. I hope you got your Bibles open because we'll take a look at it. Job chapter 2, let's take a look at it beginning uh, in verses 1 and 2. Actually, what we're going to walk through today, just to give you an idea, is we're going to walk through five principles. We're going to look at Satan's status. We're going to look at God's reputation. Then we'll see Job's suffering, Job's integrity, and Job's friends, and that's kind of the outline for today. First of all, Satan's status. We see that in verses 1 and 2 of Job chapter 2. It says this, On another day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? 
Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Now, if you remember last week's message, you will recognize that it'll be a sense of deja vu for you because that's the identical passage from uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, except that it's on another day and rather than on the original day. But the words other than that are identical to last week. You got another meeting here. They've had the one meeting. They've had that, that kind of deal that's gone down. And now he comes back to check up on what's happening here. But as we look at it, I want to uh, point out something very, very uh, important. There was something actually that came up in our home group this past week. We have a home group that uh, every once in a while what we do is we take notes from the previous Sunday and we look at them and discuss them and see how they apply to our lives and ask whatever questions might have come up. And one of the things that, one of the many good things that came up in this past week's home group on this whole idea of Satan coming to Job was take a look at the manner in which uh, Satan comes to God. The picture a lot of us have in our heads about this, and probably the picture I've had in my head throughout the years about this, is kind of like this this great summit meeting of the giants of the universe, that you've got Satan and his demons on one side and God and his angels on the other side, and Satan and God sit down at the table with this flanking of the angels around God and demons around Satan, kind of like the meeting of two heads of the mafia families or two presidents of countries or something. And that's how I've kind of perceived this whole thing, this, this you know, um, almost like equal powers but light and dark against each other. But if you take a look at it, that's really not what happens. Take a look at how Satan comes. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. Now that phrase, present themselves before the Lord, is a servant's phrase. It is the phrase that you would use if the master of a household called all of the household servants for the weekly inspection. And they come to present themselves, and they stand up and stand in a line, and the boss goes down the line and makes sure that everybody's got their shirt tucked in and that kind of thing, kind of like a, the review by the sergeant of the troops, you know. And, hey, sergeant, you know, your shoes need to be shined. Uh, you know, you need to pluck that uh, nose hair, you know, those kinds of things. And uh, that's what it is. They're coming as servants through the servant's entrance to present themselves as servants to make an account of themselves before their boss. That's how the angels come. Now, Part of the reason we have a hard time understanding it that way is because our view of angels has been influenced by popular culture more than it's been influenced by the Bible. Popu- in popular culture, we see angels as being above us, better than us, greater than us. But the scripture says that's not the case at all. The status of angels in God's word is God first, us second, angels underneath us. They are ministering servants to us. The angels are God's servants, but we as Christians are God's kids, and the kids always have a status higher than the servants. So here's Satan. Where does he fit? Well, he comes in with the servants, which means under us, and he is a fallen angel, so he's even under those servants. This case may be a little bit of an indication as to how this weird meeting takes place. Is it, part of the reason for the meeting, is it that God calls Satan in regularly to flex his muscles, to let Satan know, hey, you may have been given charge of this particular portion of the universe, but I'm God and I'm still in charge. When God calls, even Satan has to respond if Satan is called. But when he does, it's like God saying, hey, yeah, come in through the servant's entrance with the rest of the servants. I wonder and I suppose that probably God asked each of the angels the same question that he asked Satan. Namely, Michael, where have you been and what have you been doing? Gabriel, where have you been and what have you been doing? And we only have a record of Satan's because Satan's is the one that brings this story about. So, Anyway, what Satan's status, what we need to understand here is that it's not the equivalent of God. It's not even the equivalent of us or above us. It's not even the equivalent of the angels. 
He is beneath the angels who are beneath us, who are beneath God. And he's there to give a quavering, quivering report before the God of the universe. The the book of Revelation tells us that Satan is called the accuser, the one who accused our brothers and sisters before our God day and night. So what Satan is doing and what Satan has been doing throughout all the millennia is that he accuses us. And so when he shows up before God, he just does what's in his nature to do. He accuses one of God's saints. And so the story takes place. But when we are looking at Satan's status, we need to understand it is not where we think it is often. It's far below where we think it is. And I wonder how that might impact the way we approach temptation, realizing that Satan is not this great power that we sometimes give him credit for being. Anyway, that's Satan's status. Let's take a look at the next part, which is God's reputation. We see that in chapter 2, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And again, up until this point, it's exactly the phrasing that was used in chapter 1. And then he changes it when he says this, quote, And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. That's verse 3. Nothing less is at stake in this verse particularly, I think, But in this book especially, nothing less is at stake in the way we read this book or in the things that happen in this book than God's very reputation. I read a quote recently by Virginia Woolf who said, I read the book of Job last night. I don't think God comes well out of it. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? Here she's writing to a friend, Virginia Woolf, the great playwright novelist from 50 to 100 years ago. I'm trying to remember exactly the time. And she reads Job and she looks at it and goes, I don't think... God looks so good in the book of Job. And I think that's the picture for a lot of us. I look at it and I see a very confusing, difficult picture of God in the book of Job. And as we mentioned last week and the week before, it's even more interesting in that this is the first written picture of God that God ever gave anyone. Job is the oldest book in the Bible and one of the oldest books ever written. But take a look at how Job uh, is seen in this verse particularly, chapter 2, verse 3. He says to Satan, You incited me against him, against Job, to ruin him without any reason. Two portions of that little phrase are troubling, at least I would say. One of them is God saying to Satan, you incited me against him. There's almost a sense of the devil made me do it, but it's God saying it. Obviously, the devil can't make God do anything. The devil can't make anybody do anything unless we submit our wills to him, and God certainly did not submit his will to Satan. But there is this inciting. He didn't say, you forced me. He said, you incited me. You spurred me. It was your idea. And that's the first troubling part of it. But the second troubling part of this phrase, you incited me against him to ruin him, and the last three words, without any reason. It's interesting. When we look at the book of Job, more than any other reason people go to the book of Job is they go to it to find out a reason for suffering and for pain. And yet God himself, in only the second chapter of the book, says that you incited me against him or his pain, the suffering he's going through, happens, quote, without any reason, unquote. God himself admits that there is an unreasonableness to Job's pain. Now, this goes against everything we know, everything we need, everything we expect from God's voice and from a book like this. But to me, in some ways, it's encouraging that this book, the Bible in general, and Job specifically, refuses to go for cheap answers at the cost of reality. One of the things that I think uh, other religions do fairly um, regularly is the man-made religions, which everything except for Judaism and Christianity is, man-made religions 
are, are, seem to try to come up with easy answers to difficult questions, especially the ones that are becoming most popular in our society now, that is the ones that offer balance, things like Buddhism and so on, where it's the yin, the yang, and like in, like in, in Confucianism and so on, where things are balanced out and good things equal, ba- equal up bad things and so on. And we've had some very strange uh, behaviors that have resulted from that throughout history. Um, the idea that everything in the universe is in, ba- in balance. Well, in the physical universe, that might be the case because science you know, has to rely on those things. But in the moral universe, you cannot say with any reasonableness that things are in balance. There's no way that there's an equivalent bad to good. There's no way that you can say every child who suffers, kids who are beaten up, uh, the, the bad things that happen, accidents that occur, are, are balanced and are fine. If you make them balanced, then you make evil okay. Because if evil is balanced with good, then, well, everything just comes out again balanced and equal, and so there's no negative there. One of the reasons God hates sin so badly is because it does not balance out. It is not fair. It cannot be made to be fair. It refuses to, But the Bible refuses to offer those kinds of easy answers. We need to realize that when we look at God's word. God's reputation, God puts himself, his worst face forward in the first book ever given to us. But that's okay. One of the things we talked about a few weeks ago was the list. We went through a list of the ten worst things we know about Jesus. And the reason I went through it was to say, you can look at the ten worst things we know about Jesus, and he's still better than the ten best things I know about anybody, including me. And God's the same. God's not afraid. His worst thing, at least what we would consider his worst thing, is still better than the best thing that any other gods have to offer even though it's a little confusing to us. So God's reputation may take a bit of a hit in some people's eyes here, but God himself is, is okay. Now let's take a look at the next segment. After we've te- seen Satan's status and God's reputation, let's take a look now at Job's suffering, and we see that beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Oh, sorry, I want one. Let's forget about that wife thing. We'll talk about that in a moment. We stop with verse 8. Job took a piece of pottery, scraped himself with it, and sat among the ashes. It says that Job had painful sores from the top of his head to the soles of his feet, but that's just the beginning of it. When you go through the rest of the book of Job, you see his other symptoms. They come out bit by bit as Job complains about them. And just to give you an idea of what most of them are, chapter 7, 5, Job says, My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. In chapter 7, 14, he has nightmares. 19, 17, bad breath. Yeah, it doesn't even escape halitosis. 1920, he says, I am nothing but skin and bones. 3017, constant pains. 3030, we see he has fever and his skin growing black and peeling. Job's suffering was very, very real. It's not make-believe. It's not a metaphor. It's actual pain to an actual person, which makes the whole book even harder to understand as any kind of a metaphor. Because even if you look at it as a metaphor, even as you look at the lessons learned, you have to realize but a real person who didn't deserve it really went through all this pain. From Job's suffering, let's take a look at Job's integrity. How did he respond to this pain? Verse 9, which we read already by mistake, is this. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Let's pause right there before we look at the 
the next verse, which is also part of Job's integrity. Take a look at this. What does Job's wife say to him? We always jump to Job's wife said, curse God and die. But that's not the only thing she said. The first thing she said was this. Are you still holding on to your integrity? Now remember this later when the people argue with him and when his friends argue, Job, you must have done something wrong. When other people are telling Job he must have sinned, the one person who knew him best and was closest to him knew that he had held on to his integrity. His wife said, why are you still holding on to your integrity? She knew he was a man of integrity, and she knew him best. Now, unfortunately, she was encouraging, to give up, encouraging him to give up that integrity, but some of that, even to be fair, was, think about it. Job wasn't the only one who lost everything he had. Job wasn't the only one who lost all of his wealth. Job wasn't the only person who lost all of his children. She had two. And now she was watching the person she was closest to in the world and assumably loved go through some extraordinarily painful things. And anybody who's got someone in their life that they love knows there are many times when you look at the pain of a loved one and you wish, you pray, God put that pain on me instead of on them. And is that part of what she's going through? Be, knowing that she can't solve the pain, that there are no doctors around who can give him medication like we might have today, the only answer she had was, you know, if you're being cursed by God for doing nothing wrong, why don't you do something wrong and just have God kill you and at least you'll be out of your pain. But she did recognize he had his integrity. His response is verse, uh, verse 10. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? To which I respond, well, yeah. Of course, I want to accept good from God and not trouble. In fact, that's our attitude. That's what we've been taught for years. God gives us good stuff. Satan is to blame for all of our troubles. Right? I think part of that today is because we live in an era of mushy gods. We live in an era where it's all brightness and sunshine and ponies and rainbows and everything's nice and we only want to serve a God who gives us nice things that we want. And so anything that we don't want, well, we have to find someone to blame for and so we blame Satan for it. But back in the era of Job, they didn't live in an era of mushy gods. They lived in an era of unspeakably cruel, nasty gods. And so this god actually looks quite tame by comparison. But for us today, with our mushy gods, he looks very harsh and very, very difficult. Maybe that's part of the explanation. But nevertheless, it goes back to the question we started with today. What do we do? When God shows up and brings trouble, is that okay? Because that was Job's idea. God showed up. God brought me trouble, and I didn't deserve it. And he says, should we accept good from God and not trouble? If it came from God, I will accept it as well, is really what he's saying. Which brings up, to the, well, actually, let's go to the, the, the last part of 10 then. In all this, it says, Job did not sin in what he said. Which brings up this question. How did Job know right from wrong? How did he know to do the good thing and not the bad thing? This was before the law had been written. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy had not been written. The Ten Commandments had not yet been given to Moses. That was hundreds of years away. There was no uh, knowledge of Job that we are aware of. There's no way that, that Job knew about the covenant even that had happened between God and Abraham as far as we know. How did he know the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Well, it's the same way anybody knows the right thing or wrong thing to do. That God has planted within every single heart a conscience. The word conscience is mentioned at least 29 times in the Bible. And the place that it gives us the best lesson about what our conscience is, in Romans 2, verse 14 and 15, the New Living Translation puts it this way. Even when Gentiles who do not have God's written law instinctively follow what the law says, so the Bible says, 
Even if we haven't read the law, we have an instinct within us to follow what the law says. When we do that, they show that in their hearts they know right from wrong. Every one of us in our hearts knows right from wrong. Verse 15, they demonstrate that God's law is written within them for their own consciences. Either accuse them or tell them they are doing what is right. Every single person who has ever lived has a basic substantive sense of what's right and wrong from within inside them. And it wasn't put there by mistake, and we didn't create it on our own. God put it there, and it's called the conscience. Now, the conscience isn't enough because our consciences, just like everything else, have been corrupted by the fall, by sin. So that's why we need the law. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need the Holy Spirit in us. But if you don't have any of those things, the Scripture lets us know we still know right from wrong because of the conscience God put in us. Job knew that. He followed his conscience. He had integrity. Well, let's go along and we'll finish with these verses. Job chapter 2, beginning with verse 11 now. And we'll see about Job's friends. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, let me pause right there, all those interesting names, right? When I read these verses, when I read that verse uh, a couple weeks ago, somebody came to me after the service and said, oh, now I know the shortest person in the Bible. I said, you do? Who is that? He said, it's Bildad the Shuhite. Yeah, I know that's really bad. Nobody laughs on Sunday either. I keep telling it though. Anyway, when these three guys heard about the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Job's friends. Uh, Starting next week and over the next couple weeks after that, we will give Job's friends plenty of deserved criticism. But for today, let's stop at this verse and let's take a look at the things they did right. uh, We'll go to the next verse next Sunday. We'll give ourselves seven days to ponder this, just like they gave themselves seven days to Job. Take a look, first of all, at what Job's friends did right. And you're going to see actually six things that I see, at least, that they did right here. First of all, in verse 11, it says, They came as soon as they heard as soon as they, it says they heard about the troubles and they set out from their homes. What did they come with? Did they come with medicine? Did they come with the latest scientific advance? Did they come with money? No. They didn't have an answer to his problem. They certainly weren't able to restore his dead children to life again. So why did they come if they didn't have any answers? Well, they came because Job needed them there. We have a tendency sometimes in our lives, to avoid things that we have no answers for. Especially in our modern society, we have found so many answers to so many of the mysteries of life. Science has just been extraordinary in that way. That sometimes if we don't have an answer, we shy away. And that's, I think, part of the reason why we approach Job so tentatively is because we want to go to Job and now for answers, but the only answers in Job are the answers of Job's friends, which we'll see later, and God criticizes them for those answers. It's a Job, of, it, it, Job is a book of questions without answers for the large part. But the first thing they did was they heard a friend was in need and they came, even if they had no answers. And you've got to give them credit for that. Second thing they did right was they came together. It says in the middle of verse 11, after they set out from their homes, they met together by agreement. So somehow they communicated with each other. Some, they said, let's meet at a common place and let's go there together. Why not just meet where Job was? Because they recognized spending that time together before they met him would be helpful for them and would eventually be helpful for Job. Scripture says, Jesus, hundreds, thousands of years later, Matthew 18 says this, Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, 
there am I with them. It's important to get together. It's an aspect of our faith that is important that strengthens us, and it strengthened them to be able to strengthen Job when they met and they came together. So they came when they heard, they came together. Thirdly, they had the right motivation. We see it at the end of verse 11. They came by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Now, later on, they criticized, but that wasn't why they came. They criticized after Job spoke. They came originally to do two good things, to sympathize and to comfort. That's the right motivation when someone's hurting. So they came when they heard. They came together. They had the right motivation. Fourthly, they mourned for him. We see it in verse 12. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. They mourned for him. They were sad when they saw their friend in such a horrible state, and they expressed that sadness. Scripture says it's important to laugh with those who laugh and cry with those who cry. And sometimes it's easy for us to laugh with those who laugh, but we run away from the crying. Or we see someone in tears and we try to get them to laugh. And that's not helpful often. Often you just people need permission to be sad. Uh, they need to, let, to, to be told it's okay to cry. You've had a loss. It is appropriate to cry when you've had a loss. And they mourn for him, and that was a good thing. Not only did they mourn for him, but the next point that I see they did right is they mourned with him. And we see that at the beginning of verse 13. After they saw him, and they came and they sprinkled dust uh, 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 on their heads, then it says in verse 13, they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. He was sitting on dirt. He was sitting with all this disease and horrible things upon him. And they sat down right with him for seven days and seven nights. We have a tendency to want to get the solution so quickly that we don't take the time to sit with somebody. They didn't have an answer. They weren't about to get an answer. And yeah, we're going to criticize the, the peop those people in a, in a week or two because the Bible does. But before we jump to the criticism, let's take a look at it and say, how, what kind of a right do I have to criticize these people? Have I sat with someone suffering for seven days and seven nights? Have I put in the time to earn the right to speak? Um, they put in that time. They did that right. And I think we can learn from that as well. And then the final thing we learn from them here at the end of verse 13 is, they stayed in silence. The verse goes this way. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. For seven days, with not a word spoken. Again, we have a tendency in our society to want to talk people out of their pain. I've actually seen this happen. Ministers have seen it happen too. I've been at a funeral where in the rece reception line afterwards while people were get, getting around and uh, getting something to eat and drink, I have heard people go up to a widow and trying to comfort the widow say, don't worry, the Lord has someone else out there for you. And all I could think of was, oh my goodness, how, how insensitive can you be? Let the person at least mourn the loss of the one they loved. Give them time. At least get past the funeral before you start trying to hook them up with somebody else. But it's this desire to sweep the pain away so quickly. And so we start talking to fill it with noise. And we need to learn to be quiet. We need to learn to sit in silence, especially when the pain is so deep. It's one of the first lessons that I learned when I became a minister. I still remember getting in my little convertible VW bug when I had just graduated from Bible college and I'd been called to go and be an associate pastor at a church. I got in that little VW bug and I was driving up to Susanville, California, and I was driving along and thinking about what I was heading into. And partway through, I got gripped with fear when I realized I'm going to show up 
and people who are married, people who have been Christians for 50 years, people who are in their 70s are going to come to me as a pastor and expect me to have answers for their life. And I'm not even married. I have no idea what I'm doing. How can I offer help to those people? So I made the mistake originally of trying to overcompensate for that. So somebody come in, they'd have a difficulty. They would barely get their issue out on the table, and I'd start talking, and I'd talk their ear off for an hour with all these answers. I never had anybody come back for a second counseling session, I guess because I answered all their questions perfectly. No, obviously it was not the case. What happened was they didn't want to be talked to. They wanted to be listened to. And when I realized that after a year or so, and I started listening, it's amazing how often I'll go through an entire counseling session, say virtually nothing, and have somebody at the end say, thank you. Your wisdom, your, your advice was so wise. You were even so helpful today. And I just sit there and go, I didn't do anything. Because we need to be listened to. Well, next week we're going to take a look at the next chapter and see what Job's friends did wrong, as I say. But for right now, let's sit for seven days like they sat for seven days. Take some time to ponder this. Ask yourself, how do you respond to difficult situations? Do you tend to talk them through? Do you tend to uh, just pretend they don't exist? Do you tend to shove them to the side? Do you tend to try to find quick pad answers? If so, I encourage you to pause, to spend the time that's needed in silence, to ponder, to listen, to hear, because in those places, that's where we hear the voice of God. Hi there. If my voice sounds familiar because you've just been listening to a message from me, my name's Carl Vaders. If the voice you're hearing now is different from the voice you just heard, well, either way, the message you just heard was preached at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. And we're just tagging this on to the end of, in case you got a copy of a copy of a copy of something, and I'm not sure where it came from. Cornerstone Christian Fellowship is located at 17575 Euclid Street in Fountain Valley, California. You can get a hold of us through the phone number 714-962-5412 or check us out on the web at cornerstonefv. That's cornerstonefv for Fountain Valley.com.